This is the Yahoo Finance Sportsbook Podcast. Okay, welcome back to Sportsbook. As you know, we are in the thick of the NFL season. I think we might be done mostly talking about golf for the year. Uh, Last week, we were lucky enough to have Greg Norman on here. And this week, we have a special guest. We love to bring on authors of new books. And out with a new book this week called The Fifth Risk, it's Michael Lewis. And listeners might also know him as the author of The Big Short, The Blind Side, and Moneyball. Hi, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, my pleasure. Uh, Well, so your new book is really interesting. I whipped through it in the last couple days. Really more focused on, well, it starts out with the Trump administration transition, which is so fascinating. And then you kind of get into all of the specifics with certain branches of the government that are really important, but sort of often ignored. Uh, And I want to focus on sort of a lot of your other books in the past. But to to start with this newest book, The Fifth Risk, you know, it, it reminded me the Trump team has or Trump himself has taken so much flack for the frequency with which he golfs. I mean, this is unprecedented. We've asked other golfers about this too, but we have a president who owns 16 golf courses. And I mean, regardless of your politics, it's sort of like, to me, there's never been a president who so is deeply connected to a sport. Well, you could argue that Obama was deeply connected to basketball. I mean, he was off playing basketball every weekend, right? Right. And and yeah. and uh, oh, he filled out his brackets for the for the March Madness, which Trump won't do. And if you yeah. actually, the minute you met Obama, uh, you would it descended into a sports conversation. I, when I first time I met him, he said, "Sorry about your Saints." That was when the Saints were right. were were, were, were they suspended the whole team. Bounty for, Gate. Yeah, uh-huh. Bounty Gate. Um, so. I suspect a conversation with Obama about sports generally would be richer and more free-flowing, and that Trump is very specifically about golf mm-hmm. and doesn't seem to know all that much about other things. Um, and it's interesting why, I mean, I think it's probably very damning about golf that he likes it so much. <laughs> he's fat, he's not an athlete, uh, but, but in addition, I think it's like one of those sports where you get to create your own reality. He famously cheats at golf, right? Mm. You sort of like nobody's going to call you on it. You can sort of make up your own score. So you get to you get to you get to grade yourself, and that's really not true in sports where you're competing against someone else uh, in a really direct, more direct way. Is is it possible that golf's the easiest sport to cheat at? Well, I mean, you're out there on your own. I mean, if you're a professional, you have to fill out your card. Right, and right, right. No, I mean, if you're playing the way he's playing, yeah. If you're just playing with. If you, you play know, basketball. You play basketball the way he. I'm hurt. Totally plays golf. You know, you get the you get the crap beat out of you by people you're playing with. <laughs> right. They wouldn't put up with it. Absolutely. Uh, so it, it enables him to live in his own little reality. So that tells you something about golf, right? It's like this weird alternative reality that the golfer can create for himself. I've always thought there's a madness about golf. Uh, so it, it's a, it drives people mad and it attracts mad people. And they call it, you know, for so long they called it the sport of business, which is I think why it makes sense that that Trump is so golf-focused. I mean, for a long time, the idea was you'd go out on the golf course to to finish a deal. Right. Now, I don't know if that's the case anymore, but you probably remember about a year ago, Phil Mickelson was involved in, you know, some allegations about uh, insider trading and because of his gambling, and he has a friend who's practically a professional gambler, and and all of the supposed secrets that were exchanged between these three people happened on the golf course. Right. Well, I'm trying to think if Trump, does that, if that, if that, it is a- absolutely true. It's like where, it's where guys go to do do business on the golf course. But, but I I don't I don't imagine Trump cutting a lot of deals on the co- golf course. I imagine him playing kind of in his head alone, <laughs> right? I and mean, he doesn't have any obvious close friends, uh, so he's not there for that. 
I don't know what he's there for. Uh, I, that would be it. Would be an interesting piece of journalism. To two two pieces of journalism be interesting to about Trump. One late at night when he's tweeting, or early in the morning when he's tweeting. Yeah, where is he? We're just sitting there with him, watching him do. Mm. You know, I he, think he wakes up, literally reaches to the bedside table for his phone, and it's the first thing he does. That's he just probably starts right. Tweeting what's in his head. That's probably right. And, and the second would be to follow him along on a golf on the golf course and just see how he plays. You can learn a lot. You really do learn a lot about people watching him play sports. Watch him do anything. Absolutely. But you, you know, I played basketball with Obama, and that that was great because you saw that. However decorous, well-behaved, et cetera, he is in public life. He's a bastard on the basketball court. It's like <laughs> wildly competitive. It throws elbows, yeah. you know, uh, is rude. Uh, you know, but he, he, you, could see, you could see the raw competitiveness. Uh, and I think you know this. You play pick up anything with, any, with people, and you really just feel like you know them afterwards. Yeah, for me, it's ping pong. I don't, I don't behave well when I play ping pong. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, it's par for the course. Let's stick with Trump for just one more thing, which is let's shift to NFL. You know, he has had a real impact over the last year. I mean, it's sort of hard to deny the angry tweeting, you know, bringing it up at rallies. He clearly decided that railing about the NFL and the protests during the national anthem that were started by Colin Kaepernick was a successful thing with his base. You know, in fact, it was exactly one year ago that he first brought all this up. He sort of went on like a three long rant at a rally in Alabama and he called NFL players sons of bitches and he said if if you see protesting you should leave the game you should walk out he said shame on the owners you should fire players who protest and then you know I, I would argue that a lot of the fuel of the whole narrative and media covering it was even less seeing the players protest and more about Trump's continued tweets and we had a, a former NFL player Martellus Bennett in here who, who won a Super Bowl with the Patriots um, a few months back and he said that Trump was really successful in kind of ruining the point of the protests mm. because players started to get so outraged by his tweets that they were joining the protests, but it no longer was about police brutality. It became, we're protesting Trump. My take on it was that um, there were different threads to the, to the enthusiasm that Trump found for, for his message. One of it was obviously racist, that, uh, that a lot of white people uh, found another excuse uh, to sort of heap hate on black people. Um, some of it was really kind of idiotic patriotism, the idea that the that, flag. that you're somehow disrespecting the military, which is baloney. Um, and uh, yeah, some of it was just pure like tribalism, us versus them. And he, so he, uh, so it, it's, he's really good at finding ways to polarize a society. Uh, and he did distort, his interpretation of the message helped distort the message. Uh, and I was, I'm still off of the players. I wish they'd all go out and kneel down. Uh, but the, the NFL has, you know, can put a lot of pressure on them. The interesting difference, the, the, so the way this all played out in, in football, very different from how it played out in basketball, right? Right. Why? Basketball's guaranteed contracts. Mm. Most of those people on that court, their money's guaranteed. The the players aren't controlled by the organization in the same way the NFL players are controlled by the organization. Some people in the NFL have big guaranteed money, but most of them they get hurt and they're gone the next day. And uh, and they're also more. Most of them are more replaceable than the the guys who are starting on an NBA team. But I love the way the NBA handled it. I think the NBA's re- relationship to Trump is is 
a glorious thing to behold. Coaches willing to speak their minds, coaches willing to say this isn't who we are as a people. Players, you know, very articulately taking stands against him. Uh, every argument that Trump has had with the NBA, he's lost, in my view. Uh, it always makes him look worse. Hmm. And but the NFL, he has some sway because you've got basically people who are people who are in positions of weakness. He can slap around a bit and are reluctant to say things and defend themselves. I also think a lot of the NFL team owners who are so powerful are Trump friends from long before he was ever a, a politician. You know, we know that Jerry Jones is a, a friend. Bob Kraft is a friend. A lot of these people are his supporters. And so then he, you know, it helps that he kind of had av- advocates who were... Yeah, some know, advocates. Supposedly... But I'm not sure. I guess, it, I guess it might be true that NFL owners might be me, more predisposed to liking Trump than... And, NBA owners. They're all rich people. So, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I've never seen anything trying to parse the politics of the ownership of one professional league versus yeah. another. There's another interesting story. I just don't know. Today, baseball. And the baseball uh, baseball is a whole other story. Yeah. Um, baseball players are basically indifferent. It, it, right. it was what it appears. To, it, it appears because baseball, the, the demographics of baseball are just different. A lot of foreigners who are like, this isn't my problem. Right. I'm glad you bring that up about baseball because I wanted to make sure I ask you. I mean, having written you know a book like The Blind Side and and you know studied kind of one player's path, Michael Ower, um, I would ask you your take on the marketability debate that has erupted. That's something I you know I've been talking a lot about in the last few months. The idea that and as you mentioned, the NBA certain players have been so outspoken. Take LeBron James. You know, he is very much the face of the NBA right now. I don't think that's controversial. And everyone is okay with it. You know, not just okay, they encourage it. They encourage him being outspoken. Everyone rallied around LeBron after Laura Ingram said, shut up and dribble. And they said, you know, shame on her. You don't have to shut up and dribble. You're, you can speak out on social issues. Meanwhile, over in baseball, there aren't as many players who are marketable and prominent and certainly, as you just alluded to, not as outspoken. And maybe that's the nature of the sport. And you know, NBA, a lot of people have praised Adam Silver as being this really progressive, open commissioner. He's encouraged the players. Rightly so. Yeah. But, you know, there's no real face of baseball right now. I mean, people who are real baseball nerds, as I, as I think you are, they love to say, well, Mike Trout is the best player in all of baseball. I mean, most guys say that. That is, you know, talent-wise, the best player. But he's not particularly charismatic, interesting off the field. He's not a guy that anyone would recognize or see in, like, advertisements. But the retort to that is, well, why does that matter? Why should he be? I mean, is it his job to, to be marketable? But, of course, when we talk about the popularity of sports, you need guys who are big, big faces, who are larger than the sport. Tom Brady for football. You know, you could say J.J. Watt. Tom Brady's not a big personality. <laughs> that, I mean, I got his, that's fair. It's about as dull as the people people get, right? right? But I guess uh, he fits but, the but face there of are, the league. There are big personalities in football. Yeah. And they don't seem to be big personalities in baseball, but there are some. Puig on the Dodgers. The, 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 you know, the Latin players are bigger personalities. They just don't speak our language. Yeah. Uh, that, that, yeah. So that, that, that's a, that is a handicap in communicating with American people when you're communicating in Spanish. But uh, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of exceptions who are – baseball used to have big personalities. Yeah. It, it hasn't accommodated to them Recently, where's Al Roboski when you when you need him, right? Uh, but, Pop, Poppy was a big personality. I mean, well, I'm from Boston, so, so I'm biased. But. So here's baseball has steadily been drained of emotion, of emotional content. 
Um, the analytics movement has drained it of emotional content, and technology on the field has, right? What used to be a source of great drama was the manager coming out of the dugout and lifting third base and hurling it into the outfield and kicking dirt on the umpire. There's no point in doing that anymore. You throw a little challenge flag mm. or raise your hand and say, <laughs> can we review the videotape? So th- there's not the... Um, Remember the pine tar game? That was another great one. You yeah, don't see it, things like that anymore you don't see George the, Brett. You, that's right. You don't, you don't see this stuff anymore. It's become much more... Uh, slickly professional, and in addition, it's a you know it's 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 occupies a, a shrinking uh, segment of the American attention span. Basketball's booming. I mean, basketball is the one American sport that has a shot to be a truly global sport, like soccer. It's on its yeah, way. Very big in China. It's yeah. I mean, it's booming everywhere. And look, and it's got it's got players from all over the world. I mean, there are all kinds of countries that are sub, that supplying players to the NBA. And it's a, a sport that can spread because it's not as skill-based as it is talent-based. So you don't have to play it when you're six to be able to play it when you're 20. Baseball, if you're not playing it when you're 10 years old, you're done. You can't pick it up at age 15 and become a great baseball player. You have to have, those skills have to be kind of wired into you. Basketball, if you're seven feet tall and you haven't picked up a basketball until the age of 18, you can be taught mm. how to be a good basketball player. Uh, so that, 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 that's conducive to it spreading. Uh, and so it's a global sport. It's a bigger market. The players are, once they're signed, uh, totally in control in a lot of ways that the, the, the baseball and the football players are not. Um, I mean, that's the baseball players have a – they do have guaranteed contracts. Mm-hmm. But for six years after they're drafted, they're owned uh, at, at a below market wage. They are they're – there's they, real incentive for baseball players to keep their mouths shut and not get in trouble. And on top of all of that, I know some really smart baseball players. When I was doing Moneyball, a lot of mm-hmm. those people I talked to were wonderful. Scott Hatterberg is the smartest person I ever met. But um, it's also true that you, you can't be too stupid to play baseball, that you can be too stupid to play football and basketball. Uh, but baseball, really, you can go out and be virtually brain dead and function. <laughs> and, and so, and it, it's got a history of taking kids right out of high school mm-hmm. to play it. So you don't, there's not a tradition of going to college before you play baseball. So it is not actually grooming public statesmen uh, in the same way that the other sports might. I'm glad you mentioned college just now at the end there because I also wanted to ask you while you're in here just your take on the NCAA. And it's an issue that over the last few years has heated up. I mean, it's not a brand new issue, but the ongoing national debate over whether these collegiate athletes should be paid in some way. Now that is other than the tuition, because the retort people say is, well, they're paid with four years of college usually, and that's not nothing. People say, look, they basically live the lives of of professional athletes. Uh, And it has become a particular issue, I think, after the, you know, the FBI investigation in case against these agents who were, you know, paying bribes. and, And a lot of people said to that, well, okay, so this one example, they got caught, but this is happening all over the place and there needs to be more oversight. Uh, is that a story you've watched? I mean, it seems to me the type of thing that would interest you. It did interest me. When I was working on The Blind Side, I became outraged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought they should be paid. I mean, we're talking, the NCAA, what we're really talking about is men's football and yep. men's basketball. And that's D1. It. Those, yep. are, those are the ones that, that, we're, that are generating huge sums of cash and are subsidizing the other sports, right? What, but, but Sometimes subsidizing the whole university. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and those players... Um, those players are not really given access to an education in the same way that 
a normal college student is. They're professional. They, they spend so many hours, especially football players, so many hours a week on football. There's not that much left. Over. And they're not that, they're encouraged while they're encouraged, to, the situation is different from school to school. Uh, they're, they're encouraged to get their degree because they do count that up. Um, they often don't respond to the encouragement and the tr- and they're often basically programs, special programs that everybody knows you go in. UNC. And, you know, criminal. It was criminal justice at, at Ole Miss when I was doing the Blind Side, um, and they were. And it was not uncommon for players after the football season was over, their senior year, just to pack up their stuff and go because they thought that well, why bother staying in school? The only reason I was going to school was to play football because I'm gonna play in the NFL. And so many of these kids are black and poor. Um, and the thing that the, the reason I got so outraged was, all right, rip them off by not paying them for their labor, um, and not really giving them an education. But God, for God's sakes, don't erect this kind of principled barrier between mm. them and all these rich white guys in the stands who are interested in them for this brief moment in their lives. There was this right moment where lots of little blindside ver- blindsides could happen. I mean that where you know the local car dealer in in Alabama would want to befriend the poor black linebacker on the football team because he's a star on the football team, right. give him jobs in the off season, encourage his career, uh, assimilate him into the larger economy, rather than leave him to the fate of football. And if it works out in the NFL, it's great. And if not, he's got nothing. And I thought the way the NCAA comes down on any any interaction with a whiff mm-hmm. of commercial implication mm-hmm. between the booster class and the players, I think is, is evil. Uh, I think they should actually flip it and say, all right, school's not gonna pay the players, we're not gonna go that far, but just whatever happens in the market happens in the market. Let it happen. Uh, and uh, let the players benefit, yeah. who cares? They say amateurism, amateurism. Oh, please. Even the Olympics doesn't hold, but it doesn't maintain that conceit anymore. It's not amateurism. Amateurism is the school not making money. Amateurism is not is Nick Saban not getting paid eight million dollars a year to coach the team. I mean, the coaches are complicit in all this because if the money isn't paid to the players, there's more to pay the coaches. The, the financial competition between the schools, instead of being a financial competition for the players, is a financial competition for the coaches, and the coaches benefit. So there, I think it, I think it all stinks. And I think the NCAA should be ashamed of itself, and one day it will be fixed because it actually is very un-American. Uh, the whole th- we have markets here. We have people are free to sell their labor in markets. Those people should be free to sell their labor in their market. It's really interesting to me to, to circle back to something you said about analytics kind of making baseball uh, a little less exciting, a little less emotional. I, I think the stat head revolution has been kind of overblown. You know, for a while, everyone said, oh, stats, we want more cool stats things, and all the leagues launched. You know, for example, there was the website 538, which is still around. It's Nate Silver's politics thing. But, you know, I I always use that as the example because they'll have sports-related stories where it has this big detailed graphic or dot plot, and I sort of think they have that just because they think, well, we're we're 538. We're the stats journalism place, so we've got to have a chart, you know? And and I think the average person, you can be a huge sports fan and still not be interested in any of this. I mean, I'm always pitched on, you know, every year MLB adds some cool new thing to StatCast, and they say, now we can show you the velocity at which the ball came off the bat and the speed at which the runner was going around. It's like, I don't care. I like that baseball is just simple and classic, and I can sit back and enjoy it, and Sometimes you Leave gotta me fall, alone. fall asleep. A I didn't come bit. here for a math class. Right, Let right. me just watch these guys. Yeah, but I, you know, you're I'm the perfect. With, I'm, I'm with you on this yeah. up to a point. 
I'm not well, with the perfect person to ask because I'm so I'm not with I mean, you on the I'm not with you that the team should be managed in such a spirit. I think it's really great that they're able to better value the players yes. and better value examine what's and it's intellectually interesting anyway to 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 boot. I think there are different ways to watch a baseball game and you should be left alone. Uh, I do think the announcers are it's just like I would much rather hear stories. I'd like to learn more about the people. Mm. I don't really care how fast the ball left the bat. I just don't care. And on the other hand, I could imagine you could segment segment the ballpark so that there were special stat geek seats where you could have, you know, like you'd have a console there with you telling you oh, all God. kinds of crap that only you want to know. You don't know the idea you just gave them. Watch out. Yeah, but the, but the, I try. I suggested this to Billy Bean. He just looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> uh, that they should be like the 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 geek the stat geek part of the ballpark. Nobody would ever cheer. They just sit there looking at numbers, but they'd be thinking about the game in a different way. Um, you know what? You know what? That my pet peeve with the analytics. I'm so sick of it's across sports of people people telling me what the probability of victory is at oh, any given yeah, moment. That's a new thing. You can, uh, you, you can track you it during know, the game and my, watch it go up and I'm down. I'm watching. Uh, you know, the Saints have an 87 percent chance of winning right now, and one play later it's 43, and the next play is 96. Oh. Just leave me alone. Right. Let me let, let me let me internalize that in my own emotional way. Right. I don't want your numbers. So I I do have a a limited appetite for this stuff during the competition. All of that stuff, you know, the analytics and also the probability. It's all to cater to the fantasy people and now, of course, the betting people. And that's a topic that it seems to me like a, a perfect convergence of your worlds, having written about markets, having written about high-speed trading, you know, and also having written about professional sports and you know, baseball analytics. The idea that you know, now uh, PASPA was struck down by the Supreme Court, and as I'm always cautioning to people, I think a lot of regular Americans didn't necessarily understand. They said, oh, now betting's legal everywhere. It's like, no, no, no. Now oh, but maybe state, Brett Kavanaugh will change it. Well, oh, you just wait. But, <laughs> you know, now every state has the option, if they wish, to try to legalize sports betting in their own state. Many have quickly. And so it's funny you say doing seats in ballparks to cater to stat geeks because we are going to see quickly businesses erected. I mean, you know, both physical walk-up windows just like are all over Europe. You know, there are betting shops in every corner in London and Ireland. But we're also seeing new partnerships between the fantasy apps, which for so long said, well, we're not betting. You know, daily fantasy, that's not betting. And betting companies. And everything's starting to converge. And, you know, to bring it all back to the beginning with the NFL and the way they're run, the NFL is like the only league that has tried to look like, well, we're staying away from this. You know, Adam Silver has been the most outspoken about, let's go, legalize betting. Good for the sport. Bring it out of the darkness. What's your take on all that and, and how betting might, you know, change the way sports are consumed and change things for the athletes maybe even? Well, it makes it a lot easier for everybody to put franchises in Las Vegas now because there's no argument against it. Um, it it will tempt the players in new ways because it'll be in their faces. Um, it will, I mean, just what America needs, another addiction encouraged, right? So there'll be all endless stories about people whose lives were ruined because of gambling on sports. Uh, but free free world, you know, if they, they want to do that, they want to do that. And it will, you know, multiply the value of the franchises. Yeah. Um, It'll be really, it's a big deal for baseball. I mean, I think that if you own a baseball franchise, the value of the franchise probably just doubled. Uh, so I can see why Adam Silver thinks it's a, an, from a business point of view, a good thing. From a social point of view, I mean, I think if you rewind the tape in this country, there's a very good argument that you should that gambling should just be illegal everywhere. Hmm. <laughs> I don't think it's, I, I think that, that's, that it's, it's a, you know, we've we've t- it's gone from being 
um, a social taboo to being a way the government raises revenues. And essentially, it's a regressive tax. And the last thing we need is regressive taxes. So I, I don't I don't like approve of it. I don't, mm. I don't think it's a great thing at all. But I can see how it's a good thing from the narrow, through the narrow prism of the business interests of the franchise. Right. The opposite argument some make is it's happening anyway, and and sort of the dark market might as well bring it out. You know, easier to try to you know rather than try to police it, just make it tax legal it. everywhere and tax, and tax it. it. Sure. Yeah, for the states. All right. Yeah. I mean, I it will happen a lot more. Mm. I mean, yes, that's true that things are happening in the shadows, and things will always happen in the shadows, but. I think that um, I think that you bring it out of the shadows, and you got to get a lot more of it, and a lot more damaging social consequences. They tax it; they can use the money to repair the social damage. Yeah, Michael, let's let's wrap up this way. You know, I love having in authors of nonfiction books about sports. We had in Jeff Perlman recently. He has a book on the USFL and how that league failed, and how Trump was involved in that league. Uh, we had Rich Cohen, who has a new book on the Cubs. I don't know if you know Rich Cohen, and that was he wrote a, a book on the Bears, didn't he? Yeah, that's right, big Chicago guy. Yeah. Um, and I recently have sort of tried to read a couple of these sports classics that I'd never gotten around to. I read Ball Four, which is like the ultimate baseball. How book. did it read? It's good. It's good. It still, still reads, reads well. as well. It's a tell-all. Yeah. It's funny though. For so long, that's always cited as like the classic sports book, but it's not that easy to find. I think it's like kind of out of print. Um, and I also got around to reading Halberstam's Breaks of the Game, which is just a, a terrific basketball book you know, on the Blazers, uh, the '85 Trailblazers. Yeah, no, the, I know. The Bill Walton era. Yeah. So I would just ask you, having having written a couple sports books that I think are modern classics, uh, what are some of your favorite sports nonfiction books? That George you Plimpton is at the top of the list. Paper Tiger. Paper Lion. Lion. Right. God, that's sacrilege. You call it Paper Tiger. <laughs> so, so Plimpton was unbelievable. These participatory books he did. I mean, the Paper Lion is a work of literature. It's unbelievable. And there was a really funny, less literary sequel called Lions, Tigers, and Bears, uh-huh. in which he gets... It was a little red, but I read it under the sheets with a flashlight when I was 11 years old. And he, he gets Alex Karras and all these guys who are on the, all these linemen who he was partying with when he was writing Paper Lion. And he creates a celebrity golf tournament designed with them as the celebrities, some of the celebrities, designed to terrorize rich businessmen who sign up to come do it. And they, they get like herds of antelope and the actual tigers on the course. Paper Lion is his best. Um, he did a uh, he did a basketball book too. Mm. I'm trying to remember what that was called, but Plimpton, Plimpton, no one did it better than Plimpton. Uh, after that, sports books I really liked, Boys of Summer. Yeah. Uh, Roger Kahn. Roger Kahn. That was magnificent, and, it, and it's a subject that um, just doesn't get addressed very often, like the aging athlete. Uh, you know what what it was, and he tell it's the story of. The Brooklyn Dodgers when they're 20, and the Brooklyn Brooklyn Dodgers when they're 70, and that it's a it's a really moving and interestingly structured book. Uh, tri- prime me a little bit. What else? What else? What do you else do you read when you read sports? Gosh, I, I mean, with the NFL, a little bit of the problem for me is a lot of the books about the NFL are kind of worshipy. You know, uh, I recently read this book, Brady versus Manning, yeah. and the conceit was just like, oh, here are two guys that always get compared. But my thing was, how do you write it when they're both still playing in the league? I mean, you got to wait. I mean, Brady's already won another title since that book came out. But that was you remember the there was a book. Writer. There was, was a fun, book called but... North Dallas Forty. I read oh, it when I was a kid. That... I, so I haven't read the book, but the movie is 
to my mind, the best sports movie ever. And well, it's still, it aged so well. What, then the reason is, it's just brutal. I mean, you, you come away, you put down the book and your bones hurt because he actually has described what it's like to go, <sighs> go in a game. I never watch a game, I've never watched a game similarly the same way since then <sighs> because you, you they, they shake off the hits in the game and it's how they feel the next day. Is, <sighs> I mean, it's extraordinary. And they're shooting you up at, in the locker room saying, just go back out there. So there were, you know, the 70s was just a great time for these sports books. They were, there was a rawness to it because there wasn't so much money on the line, I mm. think, is partly it. Now there's so much money on the line that there's a real price. to And, and the, the industry, they're industries now, so they're guarded. Semi-Tough yeah. was, a, was a wonderful book and a pretty good movie. Um, it's, it's harder now. I think mm. it's harder now to generate these kinds of stories. And money has, it's added one kind of interest to the story, but it, it, it's, it's drained some of the other interest out of the story. There's some great sports fiction, of course, too. Um, I wrote a piece recently for the Paris Review about Don DeLillo, uh, his novel Endzone. So I've not read, read it. Not read it. You would like it. I'm sure I would. He's a really novel. wonderful writer. Uh, the Natural you know, is... It's f- football as war. Yeah. That's, the, that's what Endzone is. The Natural is another. Of course. Um, the so the it's a uh, you know a, a book I don't like um, uh, that everybody swears by as a think? sports book a fan's notes oh me neither hated it it's like it's miserable it's, like, it's miserable yeah it's miserable it's actually it's it's it, not fun it's an, it makes you it's it makes you it, it it's it's a depressing book yeah. about being a fan. And I realize that it's an act of literature, so it has to be given some. But I found it tedious yeah. and overpraised, and all the rest. Yeah, it read like uh, under the volcano to me, Malcolm Lowry. You know about alcoholism. It's yep. just <laughs> plotted on. Did, did you read The Art of Fielding, which was sort of the modern, so, much celebrated baseball novel? So interestingly, not because my wife took it from me when I got it, and she read it, and she I wanted to encourage it because she got so little interest in sports, and I want to fan that flame a little bit. <laughs> and she read it, and I never saw it again. I don't know where it went. Uh, okay. So so it came, it was it's on my mental list of yeah. things like I'd love to pick up. Good. Well, your new book is The Fifth Risk. I loved it. Went through it. Not a sports book, but you've got a lot of great books out there, both sports and otherwise. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me. All right. This was the Sportsbook Podcast. As always, we come out every Thursday morning, and you can see us next week. We love having on authors, athletes, anyone and everyone, and we love hearing from you. Remember that you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you want. Do that. Thanks so much. Goodbye. Goodbye.